Well, hello and welcome to the Formation Podcast and welcome to a brand new series. We've got a trilogy of episodes coming up for you over the next little while and this little series is titled Why Faith Matters. And uh, the impetus for this series has come out of a number of conversations I've had over the past couple of years in particular. And especially as people of faith have pulled apart maybe some old frameworks of of why their faith might have mattered to them. Um, you know, our, the, the framework of heaven and hell, for example. The idea that essentially the, the Jesus ticket is a ticket to the, to the heaven train. Um, and, and when the, the framework of your faith is essentially centered around that kind of narrative, even if you layer a bunch of other stuff on top of it, if that's kind of sitting at the heart of the narrative for you, then like any story, like any narrative that gives us meaning, this shapes the meaning of your life, you know. Um, and if you're a person of faith or a person of some kind of spirituality, those central framing stories play a critically important role in not only sort of your faith practices, but in the sense of how you understand and grapple with your own sense of meaning in the world. And so what can happen for people when we challenge some of those central ideas or central narratives, especially when it comes to something like faith, but, but even in general terms, is that that can come, become an unsettling or an uncomfortable feeling as we're trying to figure out then, well, then what does matter? What, where is meaning to be found? And we might ask questions of our own faith traditions too to say, you know, what, um, what meaning does this still hold for me, if any? Does it still matter or or Actually, if, I, if this is not about sort of escaping the burning um, inferno scenario, then, then does, is there anything left in this for me? And then there are others, I think, who, who are coming into this conversation having not been shaped up by that particular story at all and simply asking the question, what kind of, what kind of meaning does a Christian faith offer in the 21st century? Is, you know, is, aside from the, the rejection of perhaps some, or, the, or the moving beyond some of the older um, narratives. Some people are just asking the question, is there actually still meaning in, in faith for a 21st century kind of modern slash postmodern life, you know? Um, and if there is, what is that? So, so this trilogy of episodes is an attempt to grapple with at least some answers to those questions and certainly by no means a comprehensive, um, you know, uh, discussion of all that could be said about this topic. But I want to offer over these next three episodes, three particular uh, themes that I think are helpful to me in thinking through why my faith still matters to me in 2020 and you know perhaps now more than ever um, these conversations are important conversations around meaning around identity around what it means to be human around some kind of spirituality around what God may or may not be like and, and what the kind of faith system that or, or, or spirituality that f flows out of that actually holds for us you know these are these are questions that speak to some not only our own personal drama and story that is playing out but the bigger questions of our time and this year 2020 has been a, a year where those big questions have rushed to the surface um, for all sorts of reasons so um, so that's if you like uh, why we're framing up this particular series, Why Faith Matters. And 
Uh, what we're going to talk about today is the idea of presence over ideology. Uh, and next time we're going to talk about grace over status. And then the last third of these, we're going to talk about compassion over power. So let's start with talking about presence over ideology. And to do so, I actually want to start by reflecting on ideology. And at its simplest, an ideology is simply a system of ideas or belief. Um, and we all have layers of belief in our lives. And what we believe is shaped itself by a unique and complex intersection of influences. You know, our upbringing, our experiences of life, our culture, our ethnicity, our language, our gender, our sexuality, the society we find ourselves placed within, the way it's understood its own history and its and the real history that, that lies underneath the explanations. You know, all of these things shape um, our beliefs. And I don't just mean here religious beliefs explicitly, although those are, those are included within this, but all sorts of beliefs about about what we value, about what's meaningful, about what's important, about uh, what life should look like, about those things that, that matter versus those things that don't, and so on. So um, for each of us, there's this kind of uh, collision and intersection of all of these multiple factors that from the moment we really are born and emerge into the world are layering in on us a whole set of beliefs. And if you're like me, then... Then, from, then those beliefs can be a, a bit of a mishmash, really, because you you accumulate them over time, and you don't necessarily, and some of them just uh, uh, by particular experiences that you have that might push back against um, what you might more rationally or logically or reasonably think about something, you know, um, and so so there's often for us not some kind of comprehensive system, as much as there is kind of a collection of beliefs that just kind of collide with us, uh, emerge in us over time. They may or may not reflect the way things really are, but are the beliefs that we've kind of um, absorbed, if you like. And then what we tend to do as, as we grow older, and understandably so, is to look for systems of belief that help us to make sense of those things. And maybe we were exposed to those quite early on, and we often are, of, of be they religious, social, political, whatever kind of system of belief we're talking about here. Uh, and then as we get older, we tend to grapple with those systems perhaps a bit more explicitly. Um, and some of those systems of belief might be totally unhelpful or inaccurate or not reflect reality, perhaps. Uh, maybe all of them struggle with that in some respects. But but they do serve a purpose for us. They, they function for us in really important ways. Um, and when it comes to something like religion, at least some of what we're saying when we attach ourselves to a particular religion, and I don't know how your attachment to religion has come about. I don't know whether you were born into a Christian faith or whether you um, weren't, whether you've landed in it at some point later or whatever it might be. But at least some of what we're saying when we, when we do attach ourselves to a particular religious tradition is that the systems of belief help me to make sense of myself and, in the, and, in, and the world that I live in. And you know this kind of sense of meaning and this, these, these beliefs resonate with me and I find helpful for actually navigating my life in the world. Um, of course, there's, there's claims of, I, you know, I might believe this is true and I might believe this is the way things are and all that. Uh, but there's also, there's this, there's this layer of that which says actually, I, I, as I believe those things are true, I believe they're true in ways that help me make sense of myself, God, the world that I live in. Um, 
And that can be, that can be helpful. Often is for us, right? What can happen for us, though, is if we take the kind of system of beliefs, whether they're religious or philosophical or political, whatever they might be, um, and over time they can become increasingly static and unmovable, you know. So we become very sure of our own rightness and increasingly convinced that everyone else really should come to see things our way. And so we get, we move from, I guess, having a set of beliefs to becoming more ideological about those beliefs to the point where it's like we we kind of cling to that system of beliefs regardless of maybe uh, other people or experiences or information that might push back against us. And we start to draw lines, you know, uh, around our kind of ideological tribe. So let me say a few things about maybe what happens when we do this with ideology. A couple of things that it gives us, why it functions for us, in other words, why, why we kind of do it. And then also where the challenges lie. So I think on a really base level, the kind of certainty you get from from really kind of from fixing your ideology so that you're like, man, I've got this and I know it and I'm certain about it, is that sense of certainty is really incredibly comforting. Um, it gives you a sense of stability. Um, it's connected to, to meaning making, as I've said already a few times, I think. Um, gives you a sense of real personal meaning in the world. Where do I fit? Why do I matter? What's my life about? Uh, and so when we have that kind of certainty and, and, and so on that comes from maybe embracing a particular ideological viewpoint or system, um, it's, it's, it's really, for many people, reassuring and kind of comforting. Uh, it gives a sense of grounding and foundation upon which to build your life. Um, and related to that then, it often gives, you a sense of, gives us a sense of belonging. You know, so it gives us a tribe because we have other people who agree with us about this system of beliefs. And that sense of belonging is really important as well. So it's both comforting um, from a sense of kind of grounding and meaning and certainty and I can, there's things I can rely on and I know the way the world works. And it also fosters a sense of belonging and attachment and of my people, who are my people, you know. Um, so those two things are, are ways in which this kind of function for us. And, there's, and those are... To, to a certain degree, can be very helpful. Of course, if we push those things too far, then they become unhelpful in ways that sometimes we're a little bit blind to. So, you know, if our sense of certainty that's kind of comforting to us and gives us a sense of meaning uh, becomes too concrete or fixed, um, then over time we refuse to actually listen and incorporate new information, new data, um, and so we become kind of a closed system. So we've got our set of beliefs, and when experiences arise or when information arises, um, especially if those experiences are not our own, you know, so if we, if we encounter someone whose experience doesn't fit within our ideological system of belief, then, um, then we can be threatened by that perhaps because it, it's challenging that sense of certainty or comfort that we have. Um, or it, it can, we can we can want to sort of push it away, put our hands over our ears, or to accuse them of you know being um, dis deceitful or whatever it might be. Anything we can do to essentially push that new information uh, that might come from the experiences of others or even from 
from information gathering or data or research or whatever it might be. We want to push all of that away so that it doesn't upset our sense of certainty because from our sense of certainty, uh, we've got this sense of comfort and grounding and foundation and meaning, right? So it's, it's understandable, but it's I think it becomes unhelpful because actually some of that new data might, uh, and I'm using data there as a kind of a, it's a scientific term, I suppose, but I'm using it even to incorporate the experiences of those outside of our ideological kind of system or tribe. Um, you know, when we become closed off to that kind of data, then then we actually we begin to narrow in and limit our perspective and our system becomes dysfunctional. We can also, I think, not just in the experience of others, become incredibly dysfunctional internally if we're unable to acknowledge or accept our own experience when the things that we experience personally don't fit our idea, our framework of belief that we've kind of fixed in place, you know. So it's not just, oh, that person over there doesn't fit my system, um, but actually my own experience in this moment doesn't fit that system and I don't know what to do with that. And so we can sometimes suppress that, push that down, push that to the side, blame ourselves, whatever it is, whatever we need to do to essentially try and get rid of that feeling. Um, so that's when that sense of kind of certainty and grounding that can give us a sense of meaning and comfort can become dysfunctional in the, uh, the, the narrowing in and the closing in of the walls of that system uh, at, that lacks an openness to new information uh, and to new experience and to difference. Uh, the other thing that happens, so if we, th if we think about belonging and the way that gives us a sense of tribe, we're kind of pushed too far. Uh, that sense of tribe then begins to draw very harsh lines between the us and them, you know. And so you get these kind of exclusionary communities that develop. So we're the ones who believe these things or hold to these things, hold to these ways of doing things, and those people do not. And so there's a there's an in-out mentality, an us-them mentality. And so often you do see this, I think, in religious systems, but you see it, um, you know, perhaps most clearly sometimes in political systems, to, well, maybe most clearly when politics and religion um, <laughs> collide and and together form a kind of exclusionary community uh, that's maybe at its most potent um, but you can you can see that kind of thing play out if you kind of if you look around at the world right where you that sense of belonging that can be incredibly helpful and meaningful uh, becomes instead very harsh lines uh, between us and them in and out who's with us and who's against us, and um, and so on. And you can end up pushing people outside of your relational sphere of life because they don't adhere in some respects to your uh, framework of belief, to your ideology. And so what you get developed even is, you know, the purity tests of your membership. So so we can all be kind of in our, in our group together and we all believe the same things. Um, but then, um, you know, a particular issue comes along and that becomes a purity test of your membership. Do you say the right things about that? Are you on our team still? Uh, you know, and so I think about even within um, the Christian faith, especially within something like evangelicalism, it might be a, a certain way of understanding the authority of the Bible becomes your kind of purity test. Do you believe in, I don't know, inerrancy or not? If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Um or in, in, in more recent times, perhaps something like uh, your stance on LGBT uh, within the evangelical community um, and other Christian communities as well uh, becomes a kind of purity test if you're 
if you are accepting of LGBT, then you clearly have, even if we have all sorts of other things in common, if you fail on that particular test, then then you must be expelled from the group, you know. So uh, this happens in religion. It also happens in politics. And as I say, happens in the combination of the two. Uh, and so I think it's helpful for us to reflect, even as we live our lives um, day to day, um, to reflect on the kind of ide- ideologies we see at play in the world. Even when we, you know, when we read things, engage in things, even when we read the news and uh, or sit and listen to a sermon in a church service or whatever it might be, we ask ourselves, what kind of framework of beliefs is, is this coming from and um, are those lines being drawn too tightly and um, is this just turning into a us versus them mentality? You know, what, how do we see those things playing out? Now, of course, sometimes those lines do need to be drawn, especially you know, if you think about the, the, the tradition of Jesus, uh, many times those lines were drawn around abuse of power and the oppression of and exclusion of those who are on the margins or on the edges in some kind of way. So, so are there, are there are times when things need to be called out and brought to the surface and spoken to. But there are also ways in which ideological purity or ideological kind of certainty can also become kind of dysfunctional for us. And so there's no magic solution to this, um, but I do want to bring it to your awareness and also uh, go on to suggest how I think uh, Jesus does invite us a way of moving through this or at least grappling with it in some healthy ways. Um, and that's a big part of why the Christian faith still matters for me because I think left to our own devices, it's not just religion that causes us to do this. There's something in, in the human experience and the human psyche that is quick to devolve to ideological certainty and line drawing and wall building, right? And so um, spirituality can and should become an incredibly important resource in helping us to overcome that way of being in the world. Um, now, before I get on to, to, what I, to this idea of presence, I want to briefly mention one other response to, to ideology, ideology um, and that's kind of pragmatism. And, and pragmatism is this idea that you do what works. You know? So rather than, rather than operating out of a system of beliefs that you will always follow and adhere to regardless of the scenario, the pragmatic person is like, I'm just going to do what I think is going to work in, in this particular situation. It's often talked about as kind of common sense thinking or something like that. And um, there's, a, there's a willingness to adjust and change in, in pragmatism as long as whatever we're doing seems to work. Um, now, on one level, that kind of uh, the, the idealism sometimes that comes with ideological certainty uh, is in need of some pragmatism and sometimes um, sometimes that's because we can become so fixated on trying to squeeze everything into a certain way that we un- of understanding the world that we're unable to see that actually our current reality and experience doesn't doesn't fit within <laughs> that ideological system. The challenge, or, or one of the challenges, why well, I think pragmatism is is helpful but um, but also flawed, is that um, in pragmatism the ideologies are, are still there; they're just often hidden. Because how do we decide what works? You know, the judge, the judgments by which we say this works or this doesn't work. Well, usually that's being shaped by a particular point of view and a particular set of beliefs that we're kind of hiding underneath our apparent 
pragmatism. So like, oh yes, I'm just being pragmatic. Um, but actually there's a there's a set of values and beliefs that underneath that kind of that help you to decide what you think works or doesn't work. You see this um you know, perhaps for example in organizations such as churches, um, around notions of, of growth, for example. Um, or you see the same in, in business as well. Where we might say, Well, look, I'm I'm trying to be pragmatic here so that because obviously if we do these things, then clearly this community is going to grow. Um, whereas if we try and hold too tightly to that kind of ideology, then then it doesn't seem to be working. Now the challenge of the kind of if we do these things, then the then the then the church will grow, or the organisation will grow, or the business will grow. Is is that clearly there's an ideological function beneath the surface that says growth is good, for example? Now that's I'm not challenging that particular belief, but that belief is sitting under there, and it says that growth is good and is the thing that we should be pursuing. And, and uh, in fact, if something is growing, then that's the um, highest indicator of of success uh, or of the mark by which we should be deciding whether or not what we're doing is working or not. So, you know, often even even in a pragmatic kind of scenario, there are these beliefs that sit under the surface that um, that are shaping us and we can be just as ideological even if we sound super pragmatic. And in fact, what you find is people who claim to be pragmatic still have their, their kind of in-out groups, us-them groups, um, they're just trying. They're just pretending to sound more reasonable about it <laughs> a lot of the time. All right. So, um, what I want to suggest then is in the Jesus story in particular. One of the things we're offered is this idea of presence, um, and what I mean by that is, although Jesus clearly deals with some of the things we believe, um, you know, and he he challenges a, a bunch of beliefs and he pushes back against certain ways of seeing. He's um, He's offering a certain uh, way of understanding God, uh, understanding what faith might look like in the first century, and so on. So he's clearly dealing with belief in, in a number of points. And yet, so much of his way forward is, is about presence rather than about ideology as such. And, and so instead of saying, you know, instead of Jesus standing up and saying, you must believe these things, these ten things maybe, in order to be on the right side, in order to be with me on my side, uh, in order to join my team, uh, to get in my club. Instead of doing that, you know, Jesus is much more likely to say, I'm coming for dinner. Um, uh, I'm going to come over to your house and hang out for a while, or I'm coming to see you, or um, who is it that just touched me, or I can hear someone crying out, I'm going to go and talk to them. You know, So there's, there's, um, there's something beyond just a system of belief that Jesus is prepared to engage with here and that's this idea of presence and and we see this even in, in, in what he speaks of you know and he speaks of the kingdom of God for example as coming um, through him so again the kingdom of God concept for Jesus is not simply hey the kingdom of God functions by these rules these are the things or these beliefs these are the things you have to know or things you have to believe or things you have to do in order to belong to the kingdom um, he doesn't really go for that kind of ideological framework. Um, instead, he, he, he sort of suggests that the kingdom of God is coming sort of through him. And so wherever he goes, he's like the kingdom of God is, is here. Uh, and then not only through him, but he, he speaks of the kingdom of God as being 
among and in the midst of those he's speaking to and, and even within them. And so um, there's a reality he's speaking to here that is about presence rather than just about a, a, a constructive belief as such. Again, like I say, it's not to say beliefs aren't important in this uh, in in Jesus' way of thinking, I don't think. But that, that's not the primary concern here um, as much as it is about presence. Um, and this kind of presence, what you see it, it plays out in Jesus, is that it disrupts any system by, by which people were defining who was in and out. You know, And so Jesus is very hard to pin down on a subject like that because he doesn't seem as interested in playing that game as everybody else does. He's interested, yes, in challenging oppressive um, religious and political practices. He's interested in, in overturning corruption um, and the fusion of religion with wealth and abuse. And, you know, he, he's, yes, he's interested in, in kind of a, um, confronting some of those really troubling practices and, and the beliefs that those practices come from. But he's also interested in, in, in turning up himself uh, and bringing a sense of presence uh, that, that enables him to then disrupt any system that we're so quick to build usually. Um, and so, you know, we could look at an, an action of Jesus and say, okay, cool, cool, he did that, therefore, quickly, that means these 10 things, and that means who's we now know who's with him or not. Um, and Jesus, again, continue. you know, he goes, yes, he's famous for eating with, with sinners and uh, all of the wrong kinds of people. And he's also sort of known for eating with religious leaders that clearly hate him and he just keeps, he, he turns up, you know, he, there's a sense of presence that he brings, uh, that somehow the kingdom of God is about that much more than it is about some kind of ideological framework of, of, of ten fundamental truths. And that goes all the way through to a sense of offering himself up rather than raising an army, you know. So uh, what people are expecting of him is that he's going to raise up an army to get behind him and so that he can go on a sort of a conquering mission to get everyone, uh, get all of his enemies uh, destroyed or pushed away and uh, to set up his new thing. And instead what he does is he kind of offers himself up um, and he's actually crucified, he's executed by those who are blinded by their ideology, you know, they're blinded by their political or religious ideology. And they're so blinded that they can't see that God is somehow present to them in this moment. And yes, that, that is what Jesus offers, is his presence in that moment, uh, is willing to, there's, there's this self-giving that's present in the story of Jesus. And this, I think, transforms then our view of God, so that we, uh, in the New Testament, I think, start to see God as present to all. And, uh, and Jesus reminds us of this in statements where, you know, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. So somehow when we encounter the person who we are coming, when we bring our presence into someone else's space who's in need, not only are we embodying that presence, um, but, but we are also encountering the presence of the divine in, in that person in need that we encounter. Uh, and so um, this kind of way of understanding faith and spirituality, I think, is really important in our contemporary life um, because I think what it's asking or challenging us to do is to begin from a place of how can we see the divine present to us. You know, that Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us, and then his 
um, conviction was that somehow the spirit, the divine spirit, um, was going to be present to all of us also. And so rather than a set of rules or a, or a concrete system of belief that everyone has to get on board with, all the, again, beliefs are important, but rather than that, there's the sense of Jesus becomes present to people and that's where the kingdom of God seems to be at work. And then the revelation of the New Testament is that somehow God is present to us in each other and in the world around us. And so our task is not just to construct a belief system in a tribe, but to cultivate an awareness of that presence and then let that transform uh, the way in which we see one another and engage in, in the world in which we live. Um, now, there's lots of things, I guess, we could say about what it might mean to, to, to think of God being present to us. Um, and it might be worth you reflecting on what that kind of idea even means for you. Um, and for some people, that's a more experiential, a more ex sort of directly experiential idea that, you know, I, I feel or I sense God's presence to me. Um, whether that be through some kind of meditation or contemplation or whether that be through some kind of communal experience, whatever it might be. you know, That's the way some people language that sense of experience of God. Uh, and yet um, other things that our kind of our scriptures suggest for us is that um, God is love. And so actually what we could say in, in light of that is that as we experience love, we're experiencing the presence of God, both as we experience the receiving of love and also the giving of love, there's a giving and receiving there of God also. Um, and this invitation to see somehow God is present in the cosmos itself, in, uh, in the world around us. So, so this idea of presence then, um, this, I wanna, the reflection I, I, I want to leave us with is how this could then shape our way of being in the world. Because if, if one of the big ideas here in the story is that uh, God is present to us in Jesus and by the Spirit and in all things, and our task, if you like, is to cultivate an awareness of that, to tune into that, to see that and to allow the presence of a God who's shaped up by, you know, who, who, is, who is framed, understood through the lens of, of self-giving love then you know our, our task enable that that kind of that sense of, of cultivation of an awareness of presence actually um, becomes kind of transforming for us and in a way that ideology never can and in a way that ideological purity tests never can and in out groups and build a wall kind of mentalities never can and the challenge then and the invitation is for us to ask, how could this shape my way of being in the world? What does it mean for me to become present to others rather than simply offering another ideology? So rather than just being like, oh, here are all the things I believe and you should believe them too, how do I actually, like Christ, offer myself? How do I offer my own presence? Recognizing that as I do, there's something of the kingdom of God at play. There's something of the divine presence both um, both with me and with whoever's life I find myself entering into, you know. And so as Christians, as people who follow Christ, the challenge, the invitation, and, and this is, I think, something that faith has to offer the 21st century, 
is our challenge is not to just stand up and offer an ideology, a framework of belief, a system to get on board with, but to offer ourselves a presence to one another, to others, and uh, and to see where that takes us. And that's confronting. That's challenging because I could, I can easily build a system of belief that tells me there's all these things that I value. You know, I value caring for those who are um, in poverty or suffering or marginalized. You know, I can I can say all of that through a system of belief. But to offer myself in some kind of way, to offer a sense of presence, uh, is a is a different kind of challenge, and and one I think we're invited to take up. And, and the beauty of this is that we can be first recipients of that even as we become participants in it, uh, which means that, that again, that the drive, we're not sort of having to whip ourselves into some kind of frenzy to go out there and be present to people, but to first be recipients of that presence uh, and then to become participants in it with others. So in that sense then, I think faith still matters. And I think this is something that is needed in our 21st century conversation to help rescue us from our descent into ideological kind of groupthink uh, and, and, and blaming and us-them mentalities. So that's my encouragement to you in this episode. Next time we're going to pick up on the theme of grace over status uh, and I hope you'll Join us for the next conversation. If you want to um, financially support the work of Edge Kingsland in any kind of way who support formation in this podcast, um, it's the church community out of which this comes. Uh, if you're not a part of the Edge Kingsland community, then you're welcome to head to our website, edgekingsland.co.nz, and, uh, and find ways there to, to give if you want to support the ongoing work of things like this. Thanks very much.